Hello and welcome to Giving Ventures, a podcast to help you grow your giving and change the world for the better. Each episode, we share innovative charitable efforts leveraging private philanthropy to solve public problems. I'm your host, Peter Lipset, Vice President at Donors Trust. This show is a product of Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor advised fund focused on helping conservative and libertarian donors of all capacities simplify, protect, and grow their giving. My colleagues and I talk with a lot of groups doing great work. This show lets us share a bit of what we learned with you so you can discover new projects for your own philanthropy. How do we pass on the principles of liberty to the future generations? For many donors we work with, trying to solve this problem is an important part of their philanthropy. A lot of donors worry about the next generation and whether today's young folks will really be able to carry forward these timeless principles. Back in October, I moderated a panel with two of our guests, Young America's Foundation's Scott Walker and Foundation for Economic Education's Zelina Salinas, where they make the case that contrary to popular perception, the millennial, and particularly the Generation Z generations, and even the next generations down, are not, in fact, ready-made socialists. In fact, these leaders see a lot of reasons to be optimistic. But that doesn't mean we need to rest on our laurels. There's work to be done. And today, we're going to talk to these groups that have been around for a very long time, but that are continually evolving to engage today's young people. You've heard of these groups before, YAL and FEE, as I mentioned, but also Intercollegiate Studies Institute and the Fund for American Studies. But you may not know of some of their most recent projects. That's what we want to help you with today, because they are each working on some really exciting stuff. You know, all these organizations are actually more than 50 years old, so for fun, we're going to go in order from oldest to youngest. Weighing in is the oldest of the four groups we're going to hear from today. The Foundation for Economic Education has been around since 1946, a full 75 years. What once operated out of a house on the Hudson River in New York now operates out of a bustling office in downtown Atlanta. What was once led by intellectual titans such as Leonard Reed, Wayne Olson, and Larry Reed is now energetically helmed by a six-foot-six Lithuanian who led major reforms and initiatives in his home country before coming over to lead FEE in 2019. FEE's a real leader in adapting to changing demands of the younger generation. And here to tell us about the is Zelinas Selinas, better known as Z because I always butcher his name. Uh, Z, as I mentioned, your organization has seen a lot of change over the past decade alone. Uh, but what about the mission? Has the mission stayed the same or has it been updated as well? No, the mission is entire. The, the general mission is entirely the same. Uh, think of us way like the Mercedes of cars. We were the first ones to figure out how the internal combustion engine works and make it into a drivable car. But of course, Mercedes adapted in time. Or if we were a cell phone, would be a motor. Uh, would be a Motorola. The guys who figured out how to make cell phones. But now, of course, they're not the only one. They, they, they are not the only cell phone makers. So kind of the same with fee. Started doing uh, liberty, uh, started doing a lot of intellectual work back in 1946. And these days, since about 10 years ago, we do the same, but we focus exclusively and mostly on young people. So the general mission is the same, is to, is to spread the word of liberty. Uh, that The target audience has changed or has been more focused. It's young people. And the reason for that is very simple. Once again, when fee started, fee was pretty much the only uh, conservative libertarian think tank to do these things. 
now we have all these other organizations do, that do the same. We have all these other great organizations like Cato and Heritage uh, who do reforms and target politicians. But we realize that no one is really targeting young people or no one is targeting real young people really well. So we thought this is the mission that we can serve the liberty movement. This is our value added that we can bring to the movement is actually figuring out what young people want and telling the story to liberty of them in a compelling way. When did that pivot happen to focus more on young people? Has it just been a gradual thing over the last 10 years or so? Is it longer than that? Is it more recent? I give or take 10 years with Larry Reed and kind of doing some soul searching and really evaluating what we need to do and what is it what we do is that good enough uh and with my i think with my coming that was really been sort of energized and supercharged to the next level in which Got i said it. kind of we, we took a sort of business approach to this and said well young people are the ones we're going after everything else doesn't really matter that makes a lot of sense so I last saw you at the Philanthropy Roundtable meeting uh, back in October, where I moderated a very lively discussion with you and Scott Walker, uh, who we'll talk to in a little bit here. And that conversation made the case that the younger generation is not, in fact, brimming with socialists. Can you briefly lay out why you think the situation is not as hopeless as many people uh, fear it is regarding the future of liberty? First of all, most of the young people who say they like socialism, they don't really mean that means of control, means of, uh, they don't mean the situation in which the means of production are controlled by government. They want, lib- they want inclusion, they want equality, maybe they want subsidized healthcare, uh, they don't want hardcore socialism. The, uh, that, so there's one. Point two, if you look at, uh, at these people and, and what they want, actually the, the cohort that is mostly socialist, it's not the young people, it's your 39-year-old. Uh, sort of 25 to 39 year olds, that cohort is more socialist leaning than the sort of 16 to 24 year olds. Put it this way, younger people, uh, the people in the high schools, they still believe in the American dream. 83% of them believe in the American dream. 83% of them believe that if you work hard, you're going to get ahead of life. In fact, if you, it's, it's actually slightly older folks, well, young adults, the ones who've gone through college and received indoctrination in college, the ones who tried things and some of them didn't work out because that, that is life. Those are more likely to sort of turn into actually really sort of ver- burning socialism than the, when the young folks. So what we need to do with young people is we need to remind them that it's actually free markets that bring inclusion, that it is free markets that actually bring equality in a sense of equality of opportunity. And all these things that they care about, like liberty, beauty, and justice, that is only possible in the free market. So I think we have a little bit of a sort of an old framing problem. The socialists have taken all the great things that liberty and free market does, and they've sort of, uh, they've stolen it. And they said, it is socialism that brings these. While in reality, nothing could be further from from the truth. Someone who has lived under socialism, I can tell you that there was no equality, there was no opportunity, and definitely there were no free things in socialism. Nothing was free under socialism. But I I, I feel like I'm going on a rant. (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, you you have the lived experience. You've got a good story to tell. Now, so, and speaking of telling the story, one of the things that Fee has done really well over the past few years is really pivot strongly into social media across all the different platforms. Uh, and it's been a really, I think, inspiring to a lot of other groups as well. Talk to us briefly about that strategy and how that's evolved over the past couple of years. 
that's very simple. Once again, you, you sit down and you say, well, what do young people do all day? And then that younger means 16 to 22. So they're either in the classroom or they're online. And they're also sleeping, but we cannot do anything about the sleep part. So if, they, if, they, if, if young people are online, they're most likely in social media. So we need to be there. Uh, that, that's exactly why we went to social media. Uh, that's exactly what's called consumer-driven approach. And then, of course, we, we are all, all on all major uh, social media platforms. But the, let's say the, reasons, the reason why we relatively recently went on TikTok and why Hannah Cox is on TikTok, Hannah Cox is one of our sort of new contributors, is because uh, TikTok has a very high population of 16 to 22-year-olds, actually, compared to Facebook. Uh, Facebook is getting kind of old. I mean, I am on Facebook, and I'm not on TikTok, and I should explain it. That's, that's a good example of why we are on TikTok. So we go where our audience is. If our audience is in a classroom, we go to classrooms. If our audience is on, online, we go online. It's much better to preach to people where they gather as opposed to where they don't. I made this vow to in fee that we're going to become a data-driven organization as opposed to a feelings-driven organization, which meaning feelings and hunches, those are great, but let's test them. If we think young people are on TikTok, before starting a TikTok channel, let's go and do some digging and do some research about it. And of course, in TikTok's case, that yes, that, that's, that's absolutely where young people are. That's great. So what, looking ahead, what's the next big thing for Fee? Do you already know what the next social platform is they're, they're all going to be on? Or what is the, the next big initiative? Oh, the next big initiative is uh, teacher training. So last year, we visited about 400 schools and interacted, uh, delivered lectures to 20,000 students. That's great. Last year, we broke a world record for the largest economics lesson ever. We had 10,000 students in our online lecture in economics. Wow. That's also great. But uh, the audience is just large, much larger. The 16 to 22 audience is 40 million. And obviously, at, you know, you can, we cannot go to every school. So we started saying, well, we started, once again, we started looking at what's the ultimate influencer of young kids, and that's teachers. And there are many, there are about 250,000 teachers in high schools doing social sciences and about 30,000 uh, high school economic teachers. I said, well, what if, we, what if we make ourselves the best friend of economics high school teacher? What if we train them and provide them resources so actually they could deliver a quality and interactive, engaging lesson? Because the problem of economics, high school teachers, just like it is in Europe, same, same in U.S., most of them has, have, have had a, a sort of equivalent of one equivalent of college credit in economics. So in fact, I think that the, the high school economics is a, is a really sort of a neglected subject, a neglected discipline. So what FEE is doing, uh, we're going to help those teachers. We're going to provide them support. We're going to provide them training. And we have an excellent uh, recent uh, joining to FEE. Uh, a guy, uh, Derek D'Angelo, he spent 25 years in high school economic space. Uh, he's an outgoing president of the National Association for Economic Educators. Now he's working with Fee. He's developing our materials. He's developing our network connections. So we're going after 10,000 high school economic teachers. That's the next big thing. That is awesome. That'll be great. Well, Z from Foundation for Economic Education, appreciate all you guys are doing. Thank you, Peter. So when I think of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, I think of books and I think of other publications. 
ISI has a long history of publishing and distributing and expounding upon books that form the canon of great conservative thought leadership. And over the past 68 years, ISI has used these books and other publications, along with seminars and programs, to expose countless high school and college kids to the timeless principles of liberty. ISI's president, Johnny Berkta, is one of the several young leaders stepping up to craft the future of so many organizations right now. Johnny took over just last year in 2020 in the teeth of a pandemic uh, after serving as executive director of the American Spectator. You know, Johnny, I know you don't come in to just tear the walls down and, and start over, but every new leader pivots the organization a little bit. How would you describe ISI's focus up until you got there? Mm-hmm. And then how do you see that evolving and changing now that you're you're in place? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Peter, for having me on the show. I think with ISI, really, you know, what we've been doing since we were founded in 1953 with William F. Buckley Jr. as our first president is exposing students to the great and perennial ideas of Western civilization, the American founding, and the free market economic tradition. So that's something that we'll always maintain and always continue at ISI. But I think the challenge is really bringing that tradition to bear on you know the political and cultural crisis that we find ourselves in uh, now in 2021. And I think the stakes uh, that our country is facing are just about as high as they've ever been for the future of liberty. And so you know the, the task of ISI is to really figure out how do we address the challenges of the day while drawing from the wisdom of the past. And so you... One of the things you do is convene people. You bring people together. You've got a great campus mm-hmm. uh, outside of Philadelphia that you can do that at. And you guys recently shared with us at Donors Trust about a bold project to expand mm-hmm. that. Tell us about that project and, and what that's going to allow you to do and what's that going to do for the conservative movement. Yeah, absolutely. So we just launched our Roots of American Renewal campaign, which is a $75 million five-year campaign to restore learning and leadership in the United States. And uh, one of the parts of that campaign is building out what we're calling the counter-university campus. For a long time, ISI functioned as a supplement to students' education. They were able at many schools to find the good professors. Uh, we'd you know, sort out the good from the bad and cobble together a curriculum uh, for themselves where they could actually learn about uh, the best traditions of America. But today that's increasingly impossible for many students uh, at most campuses. So ISI is playing a bigger and more foundational role in students' education. One of our recent alums graduated from Harvard University, and he basically said that if it wasn't for ISI, he would have had no exposure whatsoever to the Western tradition, the American founding. And so we see an opportunity to really step that up. And so thanks to one of our Uh, generous donors and board members. Uh, We're building a new conference center at ISI that'll be the heart and the home of our student programming. So we'll continue the work. We do about 150 events, lectures, debates a year on campuses around the country, but we'll also be adding 36 events a year at ISI's campus. And so my dream is really to be able to step outside the office every day and to see the great minds, the great statesmen of the conservative movement uh, gathering, walking around, teaching students in the conference center. We'll be building uh, dorms and also some lodging for professors who might want to be working on their dissertation or a book project and really have it be a you know, the intellectual home of the conservative movement. Almost like a French salon where they all just come together and, and espouse these ideas. That's right. Yeah, so it, it is it, it, kind of like a salon. It will be theoretical in part, but really, you know, we aim to have ideas in action and to 
you know, forge not only the intellectual habits, but also the, the moral habits needed to take our country back. How much is ISI, the meat and potatoes of what you do is on college campuses. How much of your work reaches down into high schools or reaches up into that young professional? Is that a piece of it at all? Mm -hmm. So we do have, through ISI books, a number of um, a, a number of books have, have made their way into home, you know, homeschool curriculums, into curriculums at other you know, charter or private schools. Uh, and we are going to be launching a program uh, actually this coming summer for high school students to take a four-credit course. Well, they'll, they'll receive credits from Washington College. And the course will be taught uh, by an ISI professor. We help to design the curriculum. It'll be on the foundations of liberty in the American tradition. And so this will be an opportunity for students in high school to, to take a dual enrolled course and then transfer that into their universities. And hopefully, depending on the institution, it can count towards their core curriculum. That's really neat. Is that a all online so they would take it in their spare time or is that meant to be taught in the classroom? The high school uh, course will be taught online and then we'll also be offering a similar course on both the American and the West, freedom in the American tradition and freedom in the Western tradition for college students. And that will have an in-person component as well as a study abroad component. That's really neat. I, I like that a lot. That's cool. So, Johnny, you are squarely in the millennial generation. You spend a lot of time with the Gen Zs. What do folks over 40 not understand about these two generations? And, and does that give you some cause to be optimistic. So yeah, in terms of Gen Z and the millennial generation, I think there are, there are significant differences between the two generations. But what encourages me most about Gen Z is that they're serious conservatives. When they're coming to you, whether they're at a school like Harvard or whether they're at University of Michigan or Stanford, they're in the belly of the beast. They have to put up with a lot, not only in the classroom, but also through the various diversity, equity, inclusion, you know, offices that they're forced to go through as part of their campus life experience. And they're not really learning anything about America or the West in the classroom. So when they come to ISI, they're hungry to learn, they're eager to learn, they're serious about being conservative, and they're also unafraid because when they affiliate with an institution like ISI, they realize that there might be costs in terms of their professional life, in terms of their grades, in terms of their friendships, uh, but they're willing to take that risk to embrace conservatism, to embrace America, and to embrace the West. And so I'm encouraged and excited about the leadership potential that I see five or 10 years down the road. You think that's different from the millennial generation? I think it's a little bit different. I think the millennial generation had, you know, more opportunities to have maybe better professors in the classroom. They're, they're probably more integrated into the mainstream of American society, more familiar with uh, and, and comfortable with being in, in a step, working within established institutions. And I think with Gen Z, there's more of a desire to build new things. And uh, that gives me encouragement. That's great. Good. We want reasons for hope. That's awesome. Johnny Burke does ISI. Thank you so much. The Fund for American Studies does, well, a lot of things. The Backbone is a student internship program that convenes in Washington, D.C. each summer, but that is only a piece of it. Roger Ream has been at the helm of this 54-year-old organization since 1998, and Roger and I last saw each other in New York a few weeks ago at TFAS's Journalism Awards Dinner. Uh, Roger, I want to get into that journalism program, but first, how do you define the mission of TFAS? What makes TFAS unique? Uh, good morning, Peter. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. I, I think the world of the work you're doing at Donors Trust. You know, our mission, which was established in, in 1967, really hasn't changed. 
Uh, it is to develop courageous leaders who are inspired and equipped to defend liberty and promote a uh, free market economy. The uh, interesting thing is in the environment we were founded was one of tremendous campus unrest. The anti-war movement was underway, often violent, uh, the civil rights movement uh, with violence in cities. And our founders feared that young people were not being exposed to American ideas. Uh, they were rejecting ideas they really didn't understand. So they founded this organization to try to do something about that to ensure we'd have leaders in the future who, uh, who, who, who understood our, our American idea. And so the only change we've really made, uh, we recently tweaked our mission statement to add the word courageous because I think today it really takes real courage for a young person in most college campuses and among uh, their spheres of influence to speak out for the ideas of liberty and not because they may get canceled. So we really put an emphasis on being courageous and having the, and, and having the ability to be an effective leader. I think that's, a, that's an important change. I think that, that's very timely. Um, so let's talk about this journalism program. You know, I know a lot of people are frustrated with the state of media, with journalism today, but you've got this great program that's placing liberty-friendly, aspiring journalists, yes, there are some, in big deal newsrooms. How did this program get started? Tell us about what it does. Well, yeah, in the early, it started shortly after our founding in, in the early 70s. Some board members, you know, began to realize that bias in the media was becoming a significant problem as well as the fact that most journalists had no knowledge of economics. They were ignorant when it came to what business does uh, and uh, how an economy functions. So uh, we established some initial programs on college campuses to run seminars for journalism students, and that evolved into a summer-long program for journalism majors, to, which requires them to take a course in free market economics taught by a professor from George Mason University in a highly uh, world-renowned free market economics program, and uh, they get experience working in a media organization during the summer. So through that, and, and we've accepted all kinds of journalists, uh, students, uh, whether they come from the right or the left or the center, uh, it's just kids passionate about being journalists. So at a minimum, we're making sure they have an appreciation for a free enterprise system. In many cases, you know, it's a transformative experience. So some of our graduates go into conservative media, uh, some go into the mainstream media. Either way, they have a great appreciation of a market economy. Uh, so we've expanded that more recently with the addition of the Robert Novak Journalism Fellows. These are fellowships we give to young journalists to write books or do significant writing projects. And, and many of them have been published. I think we have at least 75 books that have come out of the projects we funded, many bestsellers. And then we also have the Joseph Rago Fellowship, which where we pay the salary of a young journalist with less than five years experience to work at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, so through the Novak and Rago Fellowships, we now have six young people, really the next generation, working on the editorial pages of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, the guy in charge of the, let the letters page uh, is an alum of our program. You see the writings of many of these people every week in the journal covering important issues. So uh, they're, they're throughout the media. Uh, some, you know, I'm sure that all of your supporters uh, read regularly. That's so neat. Yeah, I was really impressed with the, the young lady who is your current Rego fellow at the Wall Street Journal. I mean, just in all the, the neat projects. Now, you mentioned, though, you're taking 
kids from across the political spectrum. I mean, are you are you actually seeing some of them turn around? Are we are we, are we bringing uh, some to be defenders of free market principles? Well, we are. Uh, you know, when when our, one of our programs begins at the start of the summer, we really put an emphasis on the importance of being willing to listen to ideas you might not have heard before. And, and we find that so many students come to us uh, without having been exposed to basic facts of American history and a free market system. We had a young woman from a Northeastern University who took our program two years ago and she told our economics professor afterwards, I've never had a professor argue against socialism before. And she actually signed up to do a second program of ours that fall and, and so, yeah, we, we often hear, there's a student in our program right now who I had coffee with yesterday who said this has been a transformative, you know, life-changing experience for him and how much he loved the economics course. So we really, we teach economics as how to, a framework for looking at the way the world works. It makes sense, there's logic to it, and many students then uh, really do reject their idea that you have to manage, centrally plan, an economy, uh, and that there is such a thing as people cooperating in a spontaneous order. So I, I, it's, it's what inspires me every day to go to my office is that we're changing the lives of young people. Yeah, it's easy to forget that just a little bit of exposure is a lot more than they're often getting in these college campuses. And Yeah, you know, there's, there's one, we had a young person many more, 20 years ago, 25 years ago came, and this is probably more typical. He, he wasn't a socialist, but he never had any appreciation for economics. He'd taken a course and hated it. Uh, we assigned him to an internship on the Senate Judiciary Committee with then Senator Orrin Hatch. He took a course in economics that he loved, and he's he's a he's a poster child for us. His name is Clint Bullock. You know him, and I'm sure many others do. He's on the Supreme Court of, in Arizona Absolutely. now. He's Supreme Court for school choice and. Uh, we love him to uh, talk about the experience because it, it inspired his interest in both the law and economics. That's awesome. That's a great story. So as you look ahead for TFAS, what are the other priorities you have for developing leaders? What's coming What's coming down the pike? Well, about eight years ago, we uh, took over an organization called the Foundation for Teaching Economics and rolled it in. It does great work at the high school level, training teachers how to teach economics and working with high school students. Uh, we're we're very much expanding our outreach to teachers to give them tools to be better at teaching economics. Uh, we also are expanding our work on, on uh, with uh, our alumni network and young professionals so that we have kind of a continuum of high school, college, and young professional activity. We, we you know, when a student leaves our program, it's not enough to go out and say, now go change the world. Uh, we want to keep them networked in, provide opportunities, and continuing education for them as they go into leadership. Uh, we've also been sending uh, a couple of young Venezuelans out on a campus speaking tour to talk about what has happened in their country of Venezuela and as a warning to young people in our country of what happens if you give too much power and too much uh, spending power, especially, to Washington, D.C., uh, how they will destroy a once rich country and and create misery. And, and their message is being received very well on campus, so we're expanding their efforts to get out and talk about, you know, the or counter the argument that socialism is superior to capitalism. It's a great program. I met one of those young Venezuelan guys uh, a couple years ago. Just great guy, great story, sad story, but, uh, but an important yeah, one to tell, and I'm glad you guys are out there doing that, so... 
Oh, they're passionate about it, so it's been great. great. Roger Ream from Fund for American Studies. Y'all are doing great work. I appreciate chatting with you today. Thank you, Peter. Our youngest of these old guard future builders has young right there in the name. It's the Young America's Foundation. And like two of the three other groups we spoke with, it has a fresh face running the show, though a face that is probably a little bit more familiar to many folks. Before running YAF, Governor Scott Walker ran the state of Wisconsin and became a hero to many of us on the free market side by bringing down the budget there and helping get the economy in the state back back on track and really growing. So, Governor, what was it about Young America's Foundation that enticed you away from government and the political life uh, or, frankly, any of the other options that were surely open to you? Yeah. Well, first off, thanks for having me on. What what a great question and a great opportunity to, to, to share. For us, uh, Tonette and I fell in love with uh, Young America's Foundation and specifically uh, the Reagan Ranch out in Santa Barbara about a decade ago, uh, when in the midst of kind of right smack dab between the time when we were um, we had just gone through all the riots and the occupation of our state capital, and uh, we were not yet uh, to the recall election the f- subsequent year. We were invited to come out by YAF to speak at the ranch, to tour, to talk with the students. And I got to tell you, it was so remarkable because, one, the ranch itself is amazing. But secondly, at the Reagan Ranch Center, there w- there's actually an exhibit. There's a video uh, display along with all the other things, but that talks about all the attacks that Reagan got from the media, from many of the politicians at the time, including people who were still around like Joe Biden, John Kerry, Chuck Schumer, but folks who attacked him, and he just stayed focused on doing the right thing, and, and obviously, rightfully so, is beloved today. So we had a, a natural connection. My wife joined the Reagan Ranch Board of Governors, and I became a, a continuous supporter. And so when our, our two terms were done, and we were looking for a way to stay engaged in the conservative movement, it just was clear to us, YAV trains the next generation of freedom fighters, and if we're going to ever uh, be able to win in places like Wisconsin, Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Georgia, things like that, it's not just about the next election cycle. It's really about the next generation. And that's where, for us, God called us to be here. We're glad to be with Young America's Foundation. That's great. Well, you mentioned the Reagan Ranch. I know you're out there now. You Young America's owns the ranch. And, and frankly, owning it and maintaining it is a good in and of itself. Yaf has always had a close connection to Ronald Reagan, but a lot of the young people you're working with weren't even born when he was president, maybe not even born while he was alive. How do you maintain the Gipper's relevance with your target demographic as the years get farther and farther removed from him? Yeah, no, that's a legitimate question because you're right. I mean, William F. Buckley started Yaf at his home in 1960. Ronald Reagan is just a, a citizen, became a part of the National Advisory Board in 62, along with Goldwater, like the rest of the conservative movement, was a key part of, of you know, kind of building that foundation um, is a good example of that. We just had the students back a few weeks ago on October 27th listen to Ronald Reagan's speech, A Time for Choosing, on behalf of Barry Goldwater. And other than a few stories and mentions about Goldwater himself, most of the rest of that speech could be given today. That's one of the things that I think people forget, particularly those of us who came of age under Reagan or older. Uh, we forget that the things that he said, uh, whether it was his time going around the country with GE, uh, certainly the breakthrough moment, moment for him politically with this televised national speech, uh, time for choosing, 
whether it was running for governor, speaking up in 68 at the convention, being in the fray of running in 76 and the speech he gave at that convention, and then obviously his eight years as president, and even some of the speeches uh, at the tail end of his presidency, most of those speeches didn't talk about specific items. They talked about big, consequential ideas that are just as important today as they were back then. The other part I love about it, and obviously I'm biased, I, I tell our students all the time, I'm not just a conservative because of Reagan, I'm an optimist because of him. And I think that's critically important today where young people, particularly college and younger, uh, they don't only want to be uh, motivated by logic, uh, they want to be motivated uh, by passion. And, and Ronald Reagan was beautifully able to mesh the two. He was rock solid on the issues. The media at the time gave him, I, I think, you know, attacked him because they didn't like his ideas as being some guy that was just a movie star reading off a script. But anyone who's done even a basic amount of research knows that in terms of his disdain for communism, his love for the American people, his belief in a higher good, a higher calling, uh, those are things that, that really transcend all of his talks, all of his speeches. And, and that's why it's so great to share not just his words, but that mindset that, that applies to the issues we face today. We want more happy warriors. Uh, America and the world as a whole will be better off for freedom if more young people in Generation Z uh, buy into the shining city on the hill mindset of our, our 40th president. It is a lot easier to get people on board when you're casting a big vision instead of just talking political maneuvering of the issues of the day. I think that's a, that's a great point. I mentioned earlier in our show the session that you and Z and I did at the Philanthropy Roundtable meeting. And during that, you brought up something that I had not heard about uh, and I thought was particularly interesting. And that is your effort to reach down into middle school and talk to kids at that level, which I think that is a, a overlooked piece with a lot of groups. Tell us about that effort. Yeah, and, and just in context, it's a part of a new plan that we have, a 12-point action plan I brought when I started out earlier this year called The Long Game. And we knew the work we do is exceptionally good. It's part of the reason why I was drawn to EF. We knew it's got a great history back to Buckley and Goldwater and Reagan with college students. In 98, when we took over the Reagan Ranch, we started expanding it to co from college to high school. But as we look at the indoctrination, not only in our college and university campuses, but increasingly in our schools, and not just government-run, but sadly even some of our private and religious-based schools, what we see is it starts sooner and sooner. And so we knew we had to be involved and engaged. We've seen tremendous growth, for example, on our YouTube page with the content we put up of our uh, best-in-class speakers, people like Ben Shapiro or Katie Pavlich or some of the others we have not only in college campuses, but many of our speakers even going into high schools. But what we found is an increasing number of, of middle school, junior high students were watching uh, these speeches uh, on our YouTube channel and loving not just the speeches, but particularly the Q&A. And our data shows that our students at all ages, college, high school, and now many of the middle school students love the Q&A because they want to know how to respond in their own classes not just to their teachers, but to their fellow students, to the people following them on social media. And so we've taken these aggressive efforts in the long game to reach not only more students, but to reach them younger. Uh, this next year, we'll be doing a series of conferences targeting not only college and high school students, but adding in middle school students. Uh, knowing it's a little bit unique, you know, we we do a little more chaperoning for high school students than we do for college students at our conferences. With middle school, we'd incorporate parents. Uh, for example, at the Reagan Ranch, have a conference where 
parents would come. They wouldn't sit through all the same things, but they would physically uh, be with us. They wouldn't be sending their kids away, you know, for a, a multi-day conference. They would be joining. We'd have a parallel track, um, giving the parents some backing and, and some uh, some research and, and some things to take away. But then having content that's more focused on our junior high and middle school students. Uh, so that will include in-person conferences at the Reagan Ranch and elsewhere. And then also doing some targeted um, programming on YouTube, knowing that our data shows overwhelmingly that more than Twitter or Facebook or any of the other social media platforms, Instagram, Snapchat, you name it, that YouTube is by far uh, the biggest place, the most important place that this generation, Generation Z, which is college and younger, get their information. And we know it varies. And so we've talked to folks at PragerU, we've talked to folks elsewhere. We're not looking to re replicate or replace what they do with, with programming that, that's packaged uh, with these sharp graphic-driven videos, but knowing that we've got good partners out there and, and that we can do programming um, that, that's targeted towards middle school students in ways that they can relate and share with others. We just think that's incredibly important. And eventually, we think we even need to go into elementary school uh, and provide at a minimum the parents of elementary school students with information about our founders, our founding principles, our Judeo-Christian values, things they're not getting in school, and we need to help them counter it. I think that's really interesting, particularly the fact that you can involve the parents with it as well and, and bring education to across the generations. And parents need to know how to talk about this stuff as well. So that's, uh, that's really good. Well, as we wrap up, Kind of quick point, you mentioned optimism earlier. What makes you optimistic as you look at the, the rising generation? Well, in the last few weeks, I've been at college and high school conferences out at the Reagan Ranch. And I got to tell you, it's so amazing uh, to hear the questions that these students ask our speakers. They're engaged. They're focused. They're, they're feeling good. They often say when they went to their first conference, they didn't realize how many other young people share the same beliefs, share the same feelings that they do. The best example I give of optimism is one of the students who invited me to speak at Stanford right before COVID locked everything down. One of them um, happened to be a, a young man who, who I asked about how he became a conservative. He said, well, my parents are both Democrats, uh, but he uh, was one day was in the car listening to dad's uh, or listening to the radio in his dad's car driving by himself, ended up being Rush Limbaugh. And he kept coming back to that and would read it what Rush was talking about, would read the articles, would read the stories, would read the books. And in the end, uh, he got active in college Republicans and with YAF on campus. That's a great story in itself. But the punchline is uh, John's mother is Susan Rice. And so Susan Rice's son uh, can become a full spectrum, empathetic, wonderful, conservative young man. Uh, there's a reason why they push cancel culture, because they don't want others to hear the truth. We know if we get the truth to them, uh, we're going to succeed and we're going to be better off, not as conservative, not as Republican, but as American. Well, we are glad that you uh, are taking your post-political life at Young America's Foundation. Governor Walker, appreciate you being with us. Thank you. I hope today's guests gave you a bit of optimism. There are good reasons to be hopeful. Now, look, I'm not naive. There are very fair reasons that many of you listening might be concerned about the next generation and its commitment to limited government, personal responsibility, and free enterprise, those bedrock principles we talk about a lot at Donors Trust. 
And here's why I'm optimistic. Because there are donors like you out there supporting groups like those we heard from today, and also groups like Students for Liberty, Young Americans for Liberty, Free to Choose, Turning Point, Leadership Institute, Institute for Humane Studies, and so many others. Keep doing it. We need you, and we need those groups. You've no doubt heard the quote from Ronald Reagan many times that freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. Passing that torch of liberty on to future generations isn't going to happen by chance. Thank you for helping to keep the story going. And thank you for listening today. Please do subscribe in your favorite podcatcher so you get all the latest episodes, or go to donorstrust.org slash podcast, and you can sign up to get an email with the release of each new episode. And, of course, if we at Donors Trust can be helpful to you and your giving, please reach out. And let's talk more soon.